Hello world, uh, you are here on Kelly Talks. I'm your host, Kelly Howard, and we're gonna jump right into episode two, uh, or part two, rather, of the episode with Basi Ikpi discussing um, depression and mental health in the black community. So let's keep this conversation going. Sometimes there's just nothing left to say. Sometimes Kelly will say it anyway. Sometimes there's just nothing left to say. Right. You know, when I walk, I walk out of the house or when I do an interview or if I, and, and it, for me it's really important because I'm by no means famous or trying to even claim fame, but I, I have a bit of a higher profile um, than I guess the average person because of my line of work. Like I'm on stage and I'm on TV and, uh, you know, in magazines and stuff like that. So so I'm highly, I'm more visible, I should say, um, than, than the average than, person. Than, like yeah. a nurse or or, or who you are and what is and you know it's it's a, it's a huge part of meditation because I meditate quite a bit and you know that's what it's always about is accepting the right now accepting the what is accepting that this is not bad or good right because we get stuck in these social um definitions of things right <laughs> of what society thinks something should be called or perceived as and then we get stuck in that and we think that this is us or this is it when in all actuality this is just is and it doesn't mean anything but how we look at it and how we embody it. 
Yeah. So that's that's pretty yeah, powerful. Absolutely. Um, and the last things that are crazy things, there are benefits to it. Are the benefits worth? You know, like someone, you know, people try to try to make me feel better sometimes, which I, I don't need to feel better. I guess, like, um, by saying, oh, well, if you didn't have this, you wouldn't be the kind of artist you are. You couldn't be the kind of writer you are. You I hear that all the time. Exactly. Yeah. Like, okay, yeah, that might be true, but don't think for a minute that I wouldn't trade my art or my writing or my whatever for a mind or a brain that works the way it's supposed to. I am not going to be like, oh, thank God, I have depression, because I'm a better writer. That you can't, that's not, that's not fair to me as a human being, because you're saying that you appreciate my suffering because of what it does for you. And that's the danger a lot of artists go through. That's why, um, you know, a lot of them turn to, to, to drugs and alcohol because they're trying to calm their brain or calm themselves while also being able to produce um, things for other people. And people become more enamored with the mythology of the tortured artist without considering what that torture means for the artist and how that torture affects the artist. Um, so, yes. Wow. I guess when you go through years and years of suffering um, and you find a better way or you find what peace feels like for even if it's just a small moment, that's more yeah. important than anything else. I mean, I've, I've had Absolutely. migraine headaches for 20 years or so I thought. I thought they were migraine headaches. And then um, just recently, as recent as the end of August, I went and saw a chiropractor who expressed to me that these are actually not tension headaches. I mean, not migraines or tension headaches and that it was something that I can control through, you know, relaxation and deep tissue massages and him breaking up the tissues and all these other things and even exercises because I have created just a form of clenching with my shoulders and my, you know, my, my shoulders and my, and my, and my neck. And it's like when things don't feel right or when I'm emotionally um, confused or angry or whatever I'm going through, I carry it there and I clench up. And then over, over years and years and years of doing that, right. Having come from such an unstructured upbringing. Um, so I've been probably clenching since I was born, who knows, but it started to affect, affect me when I was 15. That's when I started to get the headaches and they just got worse as I got older. And I mean, I'm talking about daily, like two, two times a day, I was popping six and seven ibuprofen at a time. It was really, really, really bad. And, yeah. um, yeah. but having my first feeling of not having them, like being like, it's been probably three weeks. I think that I haven't had not a headache, not even an inclination of headaches because yeah. I've been, you know, relaxing and meditating. It's like, I would not, if I could never be that crazy, um, outlandish performer on stage. Cause I'm one of those Lucille ball mixed with Bernie Mac. Like if they had a, they had a love child, I would probably be it. Like that's the type of performance that I give on stage. I love to be really big and, and fun and do whatever it is, especially physical. And that has been taking a toll on my body. So if I had to trade that in, I probably would agree with you that I would trade that in for the sake of, of, of feeling the way I feel today in, in terms yeah. of my body. Your, your, your body is designed to protect itself. That's just the way it was designed. And that's physiologically, biologically, or there are things in place for your body. Pain is a, is, is, is a, um, is a signal for something else. Like 
you know, pain signifies something else. Um, there's certain things that, that happen, um, you know, that alerts your, your brain and your body. Okay, something's not okay. Uh, there's pain in my shoulder. There's, you know, there's something going on in my lungs. Um, and you can ignore it, but it, the signals are there. So the brain is designed to, 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 to protect itself. So under stress, that clenching or that or those headaches or um, even, even anxiety when, when your heart starts racing, and uh, that's all designed for self-protection. Anxiety simply was, comes from, you know, back in the days, centuries and centuries ago, when people were, like, threatened by wild animals. It's the, it's the fight or flight. Um, the thing is that we're not, you know, we're not being attacked by dinosaurs or whatever the fuck. Um, but there's something, there's something that's bothering us, and our instinct is to either fight the thing or or flee from it. Which where that's where the racing heart comes from. That's where you know the the, the sort of biological um, gastro like when you're you, I don't know if you have anxiety, but like your stomach drops, you feel like you need to use the restroom. Your heart starts racing. You feel dizzy. Your blood pressure drops. These are all ways that your body was designed to protect itself from the very beginning. Now those physical threats don't really present themselves, but the emotional, mental, and spiritual threats do, and your body reacts the same way. Because you've so trained yourself to be that way. To, yeah, exactly. Um, and, and yeah, so when your body tenses up, or you don't even realize you're doing it because that's the way your body is protecting you from something. So when you start feeling better and like your shoulders come down and you're not really as tight as you were, that's when you realize, oh crap, have I ever not been tight? <laughs> have I have I decided that this thing is how I'm supposed to be as opposed to there's something that my body was trying to tell me that I didn't realize? Yeah, and you know, in black, I feel like black households, we, we sometimes... The, the stigma, I guess you could just say that, it, uh, that we're supposed, especially women, that we're supposed to be a little bit more aggressive and a little bit more protective, you know? So it's like we walk around with this angry black woman attitude and it's like, why do we have to be an angry black woman exactly? You know what I mean? Like, why do we have to carry that? Yeah. And then we pass that on to how our children behave. You know, I was noticing a, a lot of my changes came from seeing a lot of my behaviors transfer into my teenage daughter, you know, seeing her be angry, seeing her not understand her emotions, seeing her cry for no reason and not being able to yeah. articulate why she was crying, you know, and it's like, okay, let's start working on this now. Let's start communicating this. Do you think you need to talk to somebody? Cause I'm all, I'm all for, if you need to talk to somebody, if you think you need to see somebody, if you think I'm not the one, let me know because I wouldn't put that type of suffering that I had to deal with Forget, and I mean, I was diagnosed with bipolar mania in 2010, 2000, no, 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 it was after my daughter passed away, so it had to be like 2013. And, you know, in my mind, I was kind of in denial, I guess, because I've been able to control the symptoms with meditation and, and, I, don't, and I don't have any type of um, medication that I'm taking for it. I did have to take antidepressants to get me to a place where I could even open my mind to understand that. Because I was so far gone in terms of my mental state where I thought I knew everything and what I had been told from my upbringing was, was, was gold and that's that. I'm supposed to be aggressive. I'm supposed to be this way. This is my personality. This is who I am. I'm not a team player. It's just what it is. You know, and I, I had embodied all of these, these ideologies about myself that other people had given me and I didn't even know who the hell I was. 
I, you know, it's, it's, and it's still a struggle even today yeah. to try to figure out who I really am without what everybody else is telling me who I am. Because, for instance, how does it affect, like, with, with medications, how does it affect your art? Because I know that I was really, really afraid that if I took anything for the diagnosis of bipolar, that it would have affected how I, how I performed art. What I, I know and what I, I tell people is that if a medication changes anything about who you are, um, not how you behave per, per se, but, but, but who you know yourself to be, um, then it's not the right medication for you. Uh, it's not the right dosage. It's not the right kind. It's not the right whatever. Um, because if it numbs you to the point where you can't feel anything, that's not the goal. Um, when you have a headache and you take a Tylenol, you don't you don't expect your entire body to go numb. So you don't you don't uh, realize that your head hurts. That's not the function of it. The function is to get rid of the headache, um, not to do anything else for the rest of your body. Uh, so if it does do that for the rest of your body, then you know, okay, well, maybe I'm allergic to Tylenol. Maybe I'm not going to be taking Tylenol. Maybe my headache is something else. Like, there are all kinds of ways that you sort of explain it when it's physical. Um, a lot of people do say to me, I'm afraid that if I start taking medication or if I start taking treatment, um, I won't be able to produce or I won't be the kind of artist that I, I was. And to that, I say that if you need to be in emotional or mental anguish or turmoil in order to create art, then you should probably you should probably question the kind of artist that you are, and you question whether or not you are an artist. Because at the end of the day, most of us create um, despite the illness as opposed to um, uh, because of it. Um, I'm able to write despite the fact that sometimes my brain just won't shut, you know, won't settle down. I'm able to write despite the fact that sometimes I can't, you know, get out of bed or I can't stop crying. I'm able to write despite the fact that, or I'm able to, like, get on stage despite the fact that sometimes the anxiety, like, literally makes me pass out because I'm so, my blood pressure drops, all these physiological things happen. I'm able to continue to do those things despite the wow. illness. Yeah, um, that's, that's powerful. Despite that, if there's not another way for you to, 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 to express yourself as an artist, then you have to question what kind of artist you are. You need to question if you are an artist. Because, I mean, everyone can, 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 can write a sad poem, right? Like, everyone goes through stuff. But if that's all you're writing, if that's all that you're that you're able to talk about, but that's all you're able to connect with in order to make, you know, your your, your art or creativity happen, then, there, then then you need to really question whether or not that's the avenue you're supposed to be taking. Because at the end of the day, once again, that torture is not part of the art. That torture creates, uh, uh, destroys the artist. Um, there's a thing called, you know, I think you've heard of it, like the 27 Club, where all these, like, famous musicians and people die at 27. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, and people like mythologize that, and they're like, "Oh my God, it's like this forever." But if you look at their story, they all have mental health. I'm sorry, they all have alcohol or drug issues. And you look further into the story, the age of 27 is usually when, um, like 25 to 27, is usually when whatever mental illness sort of comes into full 
bloom. I don't know why. I don't, I, I'm not a doctor. I don't know why. But that, that's the experience for a lot of people. 27 is when they can't. Apparently, I'm sorry to cut you off. Um, apparently at age 26, your brain connects or something like that. Isn't that when your brain completely closes? So you're able to rationalize things better or you're able to understand? Yes. Either you deal with it or you numb it. Um, a lot of artists are in a position where, the, where drugs and alcohol can help them or appears to help them uh, uh, deal with it when really it's just kind of closing themselves off. So a lot of these people have mental health issues, that they, that they were self-medicating. It's not a mysterious thing. It's not a mythology. It's a problem. Um, and you notice it because they are famous. Um, I, I saw this documentary on Amy Winehouse, who also died at 27. Um, she was living with bipolar disorder. And it's clear, by the way, she was behaving before she, she passed with the, the, the drugs and alcohol that she was, sort of self, that she was definitely self-medicating with. So it's not, it's not reveling in the torture of, of, of an artist does not help the artist. We can't. Uh, I can't remember who, who, who died recently, but I remember I tweeted that um, we can't keep killing our artists in order to enable them to create the art that we want. Because yeah. you're destroying somebody for your momentary satisfaction. Because you know one's like staring or listening to the same one album, you know, every year, every day for the rest of their lives. You want more from them. So they've right. done that. So next year, you have another album. Like Frank Ocean was gone for what, seven years. People would not leave him alone until he come out with, came out with something. And then he came out with something and people didn't really like it. So that's a lot of pressure you're putting on these artists to create for you, to, to, to exist for you. And so when they aren't able to produce because of their own lives, you don't understand that. And, 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 the, and the public wants them to keep going to their detriment. So it's very, very um, difficult for them to step back and say, you know what, I need to step away from this in order to take care of myself and, and be honest about it. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm talking in circles, but basically it's, it's, it's that, that whole mythology of the tor tortured artist needs to be killed because it kills artists, you know, so... Constantly, yeah. that's so true. Like I, after after realizing that I could actually be funny and not be sad, <laughs> I was like, oh yeah. shit, this is possible. I did for years. I mean, I've been doing stand up for ten years, and for the first nine, I was like, I have to be unhappy. I have to create shit in my life to be bad. Like I would cause arguments within my marriage or in relationships, or you know, I would go stalking guys and shit and showing up at their house and climbing up on buildings. Girl, I was crazy. Uh, like, did a lot of, and I don't know if crazy is the proper term to use in this particular podcast, but, uh, yeah, I would do a lot of insane behaviors, and, and I felt like they was normal. I was like, this is, this is normal behavior to go into somebody else's space because you're my, you're my guy, and you're supposed to have a certain type of commitment towards me, and it's like, we weren't even married, so technically, no, they didn't. You know, it was just me not being able to rationalize the difference between what's okay in a relationship and whether or not, and making those decisions of like, should I be in this relationship? And then what's not okay in a relationship, right? And do I even want to be in this relationship? But I would never have that, that breakdown. I just couldn't mentally, I felt like what I was doing was okay. 
and these behaviors are okay. And then I would be funnier because I would go on stage and I would recreate everything I just did about how I climbed up the yeah. side of his house. You know what I'm saying? And how I broke in his, his window and it was so funny. And everybody, I mean, I had this bit that would be requested of me every time I went to Jokes and Notes for like the first three years of my career. One of the workers at the club, she would say to me, she was like, oh my God, do that bit how you climbed up the side of his gutter, girl, and was hanging from the gutter. I love that bit. You know, and it's like, even when I wasn't even with the guy anymore, though that bit was still requested because it was so funny, but it was like, that was such a painful time in my life. I had no idea who I was. And I was trying to justify my behaviors for the sake of love. And it really had nothing to do with love. If anything, it was a complete lack of love for myself and for him. Now, you know, being in a, in a better place, in a calmer place, I can see that art can be created at my own pace and at, with my own instructions, with my own desires behind that art. And the people that embrace that art will follow that art and love that art. And the people that don't, oh well. I can't tear myself apart trying to fit everybody's love. Yeah. Like I can't get everybody's liking because, oh, everybody will love me as a comedian if I'm this. And it's like, well, I don't want to be that because that kills me. There's a way you could tell that story from a healthy standpoint um, that would be just funny because you're a funny person. People get attached to misery in other people because, I, I don't know why, I won't, I won't speculate again, I'm not a doctor. But that, that, that story would be just as funny told if some from, from a healthier standpoint. Yeah. Um, so, so they don't see that. They, they, they just want, you know what, at the end of the day, fuck what people want. <laughs> I want to be alive. I want to feel good. I want to be healthy. I want to have normal reactions to, to normal things that happen in the world. That to me is more important than anything else. And genuine connections and really making, because yeah. it's hard to make genuine connections when you're hiding behind all of these ideologies of who you should be trying yeah. to fit into a certain mold because you don't even know who you are. And then you don't even know who you are towards certain people because you change. You change based on your settings when you're like that. That becomes hard to keep up with. I'm this person when I'm with you and I'm this person when I'm with them. And I mean, that's going to happen because you have different friends in different circles. So you guys like different stuff. And, and maybe you relate to something a little bit more with this person than you do with that person, but you shouldn't change your core being. Maybe the conversation changes, but you yourself shouldn't change to fit that. And, yeah, and I right. felt like a lot of, I feel like a lot of artists do that. And I felt like I did it for years because I just didn't understand what was happening with me. I wasn't in tune with myself at all. So I wanted to know, what do you do when you talk to somebody that you can clearly tell is struggling from some type of mental illness, how do you discuss the topic of care or treatment or anything like that with them knowing that they're not in a place to receive it? Like, how do you insinuate that? Or do you even? I, I call myself the, the depression or mental health expert. Um, I can always tell. Uh, I can always tell online especially um, when someone is, is spiraling. Uh, there's just certain things that I look for, and there's certain things that I've done that I recognize. And I've, I can't tell you, I'll say that I've been wrong maybe like 95% of the time, and 4% of that time, people have come back to me later and said, you know what, you were right, I didn't realize, or I didn't want to admit it, or, you know, what have you. I used to always reach out. 
uh, always. And it's always been something that I felt compelled to do uh, because people helped me. Um, I wouldn't be here if, if Alex hadn't, you know, sent me home with a bunch of numbers, doctors to call, and told me, you know, the stories that she told me about her, her life. So I have to. There's just no way. I've lost three people to suicide in the last five years. And so I can't allow that. I don't know how to even kind of put it. I, I just, I, I can't, I can't allow it. You rather step, um, you rather step boundaries I, than to step right. over. Yeah. I feel that. I, I didn't hear I said, you'd rather step over the boundary. You'd rather step over the line than to let you see somebody die in front of you. You'd rather say, fuck it. I'm going to say something anyway, whether you like me or not, because I know that it may save your life. I'd rather be 100% wrong than be right, and I didn't say anything. So, and it's not even just like, hey, you've got this thing. I'm like, I just, I'll just message like, hey, what's going on? You all right? Or, you know, what's going on? And usually that's enough. Or, you know, um, and so, and because of that, though, people over the years are comfortable coming to me, like sending me a message or an email saying, because they, they, they've seen me talk about what I go through, and they've also seen me talking to somebody else uh, about what they're going through. And I, you know, I'm not a doctor. I refer to doctors. I tell people how to find doctors um, in, in their area, um, you know, how to find doctors if they're uninsured. Um, is a thing that people don't really know. Uh, and I'll tell you that trick in a second. Um, yeah, I, I do. I, 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 I've done it less um, um, because uh, people have a right to their, their privacy, but I do make it known that if it's something that, if someone's in crisis, then I'll definitely, you know, message or sometimes I will just get you a message and I'll put my phone number and I won't say anything else. I'll just put my phone number down. Um, I'll just send them my phone number and they'll text or they'll call and we have a conversation with there's somebody, um, I saw her on the timeline and I just put my number in her, in her DMs. I slid in her DMs, put my number down and she called me not three minutes later and she told me that she was literal minutes from taking some pills. And, and I'm not saying that like, oh, I saved her life. You never know. And I'd rather be wrong than be right. Right. Yeah, I wish, um, you know, I wish we, I mean, I can't, I can't, we can't change the past. It is what it is. But my brother killed himself. And it's just, it's hard because we were two years apart. And I mean, we weren't super close because I was raised by my grandmother, my paternal grandmother until like 11 and so my brother having to live with my mother and my mother was an addict at the time and so just having to go through that he was in the midst of it all the time and I was kind of sheltered from it a little bit because I lived with my paternal grandmother not that that household didn't have addicts and a whole bunch of other shit going on but it was just a different experience I had a little bit more loving care I would say on a day-to-day yeah. basis than he probably did and um and so when he killed himself, it was it was it was very difficult to understand. And we all tried to put reasons behind it, right? Oh, he was in trouble with the law. Oh, he was, you know, some guys were after him, and oh, he didn't want to go to jail. And he said that this is the only way and stuff like that. But I'm like, no, like 
he was dealing with something much deeper than that, much, much deeper. Because for a person to yeah. just kill, to like take their life, for a person to take their life, that's not a, oh, I might go to jail. I don't want to. That's, yeah. that's a hard thing to do for somebody to just say, I don't want to live in this life anymore. And to be able to execute it, because most of the time it's a cry for help. It's yeah. not trying to actually, I mean, I've attempted, I've been in, I've been hospitalized because of it, you know, and it, it was a cry. It was like, please, somebody pay attention to me for once. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's the thing. Um, I think that a lot of people, when, I, I hate it when someone says, oh, she just tried to commit suicide because she tried to get attention. She did it for attention. Like, damn right she did it for attention. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes, he did. Yes, she did. Like, that's the point and the problem. So to be dismissive of it as though um, that in and of itself is a problem, it's it just people just, just like ignorance for ignorance sake. And also, one of the things that I don't do, I don't pathologize, uh, pathologize, pathologize, English is my second language, <laughs> I don't pathologize suicide. Um, I cannot ask somebody to suffer for me. Um, I can't, I, I, because I understand where that place is, the conversation is, oh, don't do it. it, it it's not, oh, don't do it. Think about your mom. We're not doing that. Think right. about tomorrow. Because uh, one of my, 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 my constant refrains is allow yourself mourning. Because there's, there's, a, there's a thing you can count on. You can count on the sun every single morning can count on it every single morning so the way that you feel today let's see what tomorrow says let's see what happens tomorrow and then give yourself another tomorrow because maybe this tomorrow wasn't exactly you know maybe it was a little cloudy you didn't get to see the sun really so that's the conversation it's let's allow another day to see what happens in that day and how you feel right let's allow enough to see what happens and then eventually, those days, those mornings add up. That sun allowance adds up. And then you're in a spot now where you see a bit clearer and you're able to go get help or do what you need to do to take care of yourself. It's the immediacy of right now, this second, I can't handle it. And that is valid. That is so valid. I, I know it. It's, that it's exhausting. It is tiring. It is painful. It is torturous. It is terrible. I know that. I know where that place is. But I also know there's a place where it isn't terrible. I'm not going to say it's great and wonderful. It's not roses and beautiful or whatever. But it's not as terrible. And right. let's see what happens when we get to not as terrible and how that looks and how that feels and what what, 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 what propels you towards that next thing? It's not a promise that everything's going to be wonderful. It's a promise that it's not going to be as bad as it is right now. I promise you that much. It's not going to be as bad as right now. If I'm wrong, then and, and you do what you need to do to live a life, or to not live a life, but to, but to exist in a way that is less painful and less torturous for you, I can't judge you. I, I won't judge you. But I will ask you, I like that approach a lot because I feel like a lot of people do um, impose their ideologies on how you should look at death, right? Like, what about your kids? Yeah. What about your... Well, yeah. you think if I'm sitting here with a gun in my head, I'm thinking about my fucking kids? Probably not. 
It's... Or, well, here's, here's, or you're thinking and you're convinced yourself, this is where I've been, that people will be better off without, without me. me. Yeah. My kids will be better off without me. So you can't do that to people. You can't make it, you can't make it about them existing for other people. You need to show them what their existence means for themselves. The and what their existence means to other people, not what not what those people should mean to them, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, after that first time in the hospital, um, I came out very unsure who I was. I didn't know what was my personality and what was symptoms of, of, of the thing that I had. I didn't know what was going on. My, fr- my friends and family were afraid, so they were doing that thing where they were kind of looking at me like I was made out of glass and, and sun and muncy. Like, they were just so careful with me. And, or they were ignoring everything altogether. Overly um, nice or not even talking about it. Yeah, I've been there. <laughs> not even talking about it at all. Not letting me talk about it. Um, so it was, it was very frustrating. And I randomly meet this this, 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 this um, man, not romantically, like just we're friends. Uh, we became friends, like we met at Circuit City and it was just like we hung out all the time and whatever. And, and, and then he disappeared. So I feel like he came into my life just for those couple of months to help me through that transition. Because one of the things he said to me that I will never forget is um, is that we all like we all have different fingerprints. We all have these things that make us individual, but those things collectively hold up the universe. Um, he said, you know, imagine your fingerprint is like a a a, a slot in, in in the world and takes me to the universe. The world, if your if your hand disappears. But if you're not there to take your hand off of it, the world will still exist. The universe will still exist, but there will be something missing. That's why when somebody dies, uh, like when a celebrity dies, people take it so hard. Um, this is not him saying me saying that. People take it so hard because of the space that they took up in their lives. Prince took up so much space in my life that I didn't even realize he took. So when he died, I nearly, I, I, I felt it. And that's what happens when, when people leave the world. That space that they took up is gone. And that's where people, that's why you're necessary. That's why the fact that you exist is important. So your existence is important collectively, and it's also important because of who you are and what you contribute to the world. And that's the important thing. It's not about living for your kids or living for your mom or living for your dad or living for, you know, all these different things. It's about what it is that your existence offers the world. And you may not be able to assess that, but I can tell you, and I can assess that for you. I can tell you that there'll be something missing in the way the world works if you're not there. That's how important you are to everyone, not just the people in your immediate family. So you might think, you know, my immediate family will be better off without you. Okay, I'll let you have that if you want. Maybe because you've been you've been depressed and you've been sad. You haven't been the kind of parent or daughter or, or, or partner that you could have been. I'll give you that. But I also will give you the knowledge that the world isn't going to be better off without you. It's not. Because that's not how the world works. Everyone here is here for a purpose. Um, and it's not like a purpose like God brought you here for a purpose. But like literally we are all here for something. Right. And, and finding what that thing is is a challenge. But knowing that thing exists is a problem. Wow. That was pretty deep. I, I like that. Interdependence. I, I, I use that 
term so much because everybody think we're independent and we're not we're yeah. interdependent and we need each other and we we live off of each other whether we think so or not i live off of the lady that lives down the street from me mm-hmm. and i don't even know her. Yeah. it's just the way that the world works and and i feel like circles are so big but they're so small i met my husband yeah. um during you know when my daughter was born he wasn't the father and we went through 15 months of back and forth and air air lifts to the hospital and her you know um stopped breathing in the car it was just a lot of stuff that happened but and, and at the end end of the day she ended up passing away but that 15 months opened a part of me that i didn't even know existed and it allowed me to love my husband in a very non-judgmental way in a very deeper like more compassionate like we 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 were able to connect at a completely different level than i even thought i was capable of and he's not black which is different he's asian and that is huge because i was taught my whole life that you know black is black is black and you need to be with black you need to marry black you need to buy black you need to be black you need to you know and so it's like being pushed to be black 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 you you tend to look at other cultures as not even an option like i can't love you like that because you're not black and it's like why not why can't i love him like that why what makes him unlovable in that way exactly because he's Asian, because we don't eat the same food, because we don't look alike, like that doesn't make sense, you know. And and after after going through, I was so open, so open when we were in the hospital and me just dealing with all of the emotional stresses of her, I was so open that it nothing mattered. I was willing to be honest with myself, and I was willing to receive goodness in my life if it made me feel better in that time, you know, like good people no matter what the fuck they look like. Because I was in such a place where I was like, the people that look like me aren't necessarily helping me either. So now what? You know, like I had one of my best friends at the time, after I had my daughter and after we got transferred to Indianapolis, uh, I, she stopped calling, she stopped checking on me. She stopped, so I was there by myself. And it was so painful to go through that you know, being miles, hundreds of miles away from my family and everybody else that usually would support me. And I'm down in this room by myself with nothing but thoughts, a baby and beeping machines. Day after day after day after day after day. And being on the phone with my husband and being able to connect with him on just a really personal level made me love him that much deeper. But see, I would have never been able to do that had I not been exposed to the 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 frail emotional state that I was yeah. in. And so I believe that everything happens, things happen, you know, the guy that came into your life for just a couple months, I don't think heaven was ever, that was my daughter's name, I don't think heaven was ever supposed to live. I don't think that was her plan. You know what I mean? She lived for her purpose. Her purpose was to open me up emotionally. And and she changed other lives. Like I had emails and people that were following her Facebook, and I mean, she was changing lives that I probably don't even know of out here in this yeah. world. But that's the beauty of 
just allowing things to be what they are in the moment, right? This day. So you saying that about the suicide and just like, let's get through this day. Let's try to do this and see what tomorrow brings. That is the essence yeah. of meditation, right? Living in the moment, living in this yeah. moment right here, because honestly, the past moment that we just passed doesn't matter. It has no effect on right now. And the future moment may yeah. never fucking come. We hope it's going to come, yeah. Yeah. But, <laughs> but we don't know it's going to come. Yeah. And it's funny because my, my, my son was the same thing. My son was, was born six weeks early. Um, I had a tumor. It was all sorts of things that were supposed to happen that didn't happen. Um, that's a whole different story. But his existence, again, with his purpose in the world was not to be my, my son. Um, his purpose has been bigger than that because of the kind of kid that he is, the way that he walks through the world and the way that he, he, he perceives and he, he, he makes statements about the world. Um, the, the title of my book comes from something that he said when he was five, uh, which is making friends with giants, um, where he, he had a bad dream that a giant was chasing him, and then he realized he needed to talk to the giant, and the giant could help him because the giant was bigger than him, and they needed to be friends. And I was like, whoa. Like, and that's not a metaphor for a lot of things in the world, you know? Um, we try to, we try to make possession of things. Right. <laughs> You know, yes. like, this is mine. This I, this belongs to me. And, and and the more you possess things, the more they really possess you. Like, you don't even, yes. you know, you're, you're, you're bound by this thing that you, that's so attached. The more I give yes. away of myself and things and people and, and stories and ideas and even, like, opportunities when auditions and shit come up and different things come up, you know, I send it out to a mass of comedians and let them know, like, hey, yo, this is happening. Because I notice the more that I give away, the more that I get back. Not necessarily from a one-in-one -one standpoint, like, oh, I gave this audition, I got an audition. But no, just emotionally. You know, yeah. emotionally, I get so much more freedom back for me yeah. than I've ever had. Because when I'm holding on to those things, now I'm just standing here with a handful of shit that I can't do anything with without other people anyway. All right, guys, that is part two of the interview with Basi Ikpi. Um, very, very interesting subject, as I said before, and it just keeps getting better. So hope you guys tune in for part three, the final and last part um, of, the sh of this particular episode. And yeah, just really, 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 man, it's just it's so deep. I'm just so, I'm just so in tune with this, this particular subject, so because I've dealt with it, <laughs> so I can personally relate. All right, guys, I'm your host, Kelly Howard, and um, you've been listening to Kelly Talks, etc. Check you out in a little bit. Bye.